A great American president, Abraham Lincoln, said that his country was the last best hope of Earth, a nation with a special mission to save mankind. I'm Professor Adam Smith, director of the Rothermere American Institute at Oxford, and on this podcast, I'll be exploring how this powerful idea shapes America. Despite his legal troubles, former President Trump has a clear lead in the race for the Republican nomination. But is he qualified to run? It comes down to the 14th Amendment. Today, everywhere you look in America, politicians and lawyers are battling over the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Whether it's an effort to ban Donald Trump from the 2024 presidential ballot, whether it's equal marriage or abortion rights, you cannot begin to understand U.S. politics without encountering the 14th Amendment. But the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution guarantees equal protection under the law and ensures that no one is unjustly deprived of their fundamental rights to life and liberty. Ratified in 1868 in the wake of the American Civil War, the amendment was passed at a time when the defeated South was still largely excluded from Congress. Republicans, victors in the War of the Rebellion which had destroyed slavery, believed they had redeemed the Republic. The only remaining danger was the failure of the vanquished to repent. Securing the rights of the formerly enslaved was one key bulwark against that threat. Without its Equal Protection Clause, the movement for equal rights in the 20th century would have looked very different. If the 14th Amendment originated in an attempt to guarantee the rights of black people, that does not mean that's how it's always been used by the courts. As early as the 1870s, judicial decisions took the sting out of it. Corporations or billionaires wanting to sway elections have as often been the beneficiaries of the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment as have oppressed minorities. Good morning. We're coming on the air because the Supreme Court has just released a major decision concerning one of the most defining cases brought before the justices this term. This year... The Supreme Court ruled that the affirmative action admissions practices of elite universities, however well-intentioned, were unconstitutional. They contravened the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. Students for Fair Admissions, a nonprofit organization, had sued the University of North Carolina and Harvard. And the question at issue here, can public and private colleges and universities continue to use race as one factor among many in deciding who gets admitted? The court's two African-American justices, both themselves beneficiaries of affirmative action, ended up on radically opposing sides, issuing judgments grounded in contrasting understandings of what the 14th Amendment was meant to do. For Justice Clarence Thomas, the intentions of the framers of the 14th Amendment were to create a colorblind constitution. I do believe when you go purely on race, you fly right in the face of the constitution. Back then, it was radical to believe in a colorblind constitution. Today, it's regressive. Well, for Justice Katanji Brown Jackson, it was an effort, however inadequate, to begin to redress the historic injustice faced by black people. There's the idea of being colorblind, which has this kind of appeal of pure fairness. And then there's the appeal of not being blind to racism, past and present. So why is the 14th Amendment so critical to today's politics and how should it be interpreted? Well, joining me now to discuss this big question in relation to the affirmative action decisions are a historian of Reconstruction 
and an expert in the Supreme Court today. I'm Emily Bazelon. I'm a staff writer at the New York Times Magazine and uh, the Truman Capote Fellow at Yale Law School. I'm Elizabeth Varon. I teach history at the University of Virginia, and my focus is on the Civil War era in American history and slavery and emancipation and Reconstruction. Well, uh, Liz and Emily, thank you both so much for joining me on the, The Last Best Hope. Emily, the 14th Amendment is often thought of as the most consequential formal change to the US constitutional order since the revolution. Is that how it should be seen? Is that right? I think that's right. The 14th Amendment takes the ideas of equal protection under the law and due process, and also a clause about the privileges and immunities of citizenship, and makes them central to American democracy. And as you said, the 14th Amendment comes out of slavery, and it is enacted by radical Republicans who are trying to address the legacy of slavery and heal the country and make sure that the now freed, formerly enslaved people have some kind of toehold in American society. And it defines citizenship for the first time, doesn't it? I mean, before 1868, when the 14th Amendment is ratified, what was U.S. citizenship? I mean, it was what states decided. There was a Naturalization Act by Congress, but it was a higgledy-piggledy mess, wasn't it? So this defines citizenship and gives the federal government, not the states, the federal government, the responsibility for enforcing equality, the equality before the law of all those citizens. Right. I mean, one way to think about this is that we had the Declaration of Independence. We had this statement about we the people and, you know, life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. But the Constitution didn't exactly track with those promises. There are references in the Bill of Rights. They're important, but they're ill-defined. And then we have slavery coexisting um, with whatever those promises mean in the Constitution. Now slavery has ended. The country has fought this war, this incredibly bitter war. And the question is, what is the next chapter of American democracy going to look like? And what kind of toehold will there be um, for equality that uh, transcends categories of race and national origin and religion, etc.? So, Liz, the first clause of the 14th Amendment is usually what we're talking about here when we're talking about the 14th Amendment. It says, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. So, Liz, it's a new responsibility for the federal government, isn't it? It is. And and so we have to ask ourselves why this no state shall language is so important in signaling, as we've said, that the 14th Amendment is creating a federal citizenship that supersedes the older, narrower state citizenship. So what's happening in 1866 as the amendment is drafted, what's happening in 1868 as it's it's ratified, what's happening is that the winners of the war, the, the unionists, loyal Americans, uh, the Republican Party are facing massive Southern, white Southern, largely Democratic intransigence of, of unwillingness to repent. Recalcitrance made manifest in numerous ways. In 1866, we have anti-Black race riots in Memphis and New Orleans. We have Southern states that have reverted into the hands of ex-Confederates because of Andrew Johnson's excessive leniency and pardoning 
of former Confederate leaders. We have states passing so-called black codes, bodies of law meant to to create a new racial caste system uh, and a new forced labor system that's as close to slavery as, as, as possible. So it's almost as if just a few years and the war ends in 1865, this amendment is passed by Congress in 1866 and ratified two years later. But at this point, although the war is won and the rebellion has been defeated, and slavery has formally legally been abolished by the 13th Amendment passed in 1865. But there's still, you, you seem to be describing a kind of anxiety on the part of the victors that somehow the fruits of victory were going to dissipate. There's massive anxiety on the part of the, the victors, in part because Andrew Johnson has turned out to be so susceptible to, to the arguments of, of, uh, of white Southerners who want to claw back. And he was, the, he was the white Southerner who succeeded exactly. Abraham Lincoln after Lincoln was assassinated. Exactly. He's very, very uh, uh, open to the white Southerners' appeals that they should be able to claw back their, their lost power. And although he's a was a terrible president, often at the very top of polls, uh, in which you know we sort of uh, uh, weigh in on the worst presidents. He was a very profoundly consequential one because of all of the all of the damage that his policies did, his opposition to black civil rights, and his coddling, uh, uh, truckling to former uh, former Confederates. So, is there anxiety? There is absolutely uh, anxiety about the fruits of Union victory slipping away again. Eighteen sixty six, the year uh, the Klan is founded. Uh, 1868, when the amendments finally ratified the Southern Democrats in League with Northerners run one of the most racist presidential election campaigns in our history, which is which is saying a lot, again, dedicated to the proposition that uh, Southerners, white Southerners, former Confederates should be able to reassert uh, their power. These uh, Republicans, unionists, loyalists had an absolutely dystopian picture of what was going to happen if the rebels came back into power. On the one hand, they were more anxious than we can appreciate and perhaps fathom about the possibility of another civil war. We know that didn't happen. And, and so that seems seems a, a somewhat irrational fear. What they're more rationally fearful of is that if Southern Democrats come back into power, they will persecute white Southerners who supported the Union, a small but beleaguered minority on whom the, the future governance of the South uh, depended. They will uh, persecute African-Americans and try to reinstate slavery, and they will destroy the credit of the United States. They will refuse to pay down the Union war debt. They will refuse to, to pay taxes that will support Union veterans. So massive backsliding. Massive backsliding. And and the federal government has to be brought in as a bulwark against that. So the federal government is being powers of the federal government are being constitutionally hugely expanded by the 14th Amendment in order to counter the potential threat of the state governments being used once again by former rebels, former Confederates. Exactly. And one last brief point on that score. The Republicans who supported the 14th Amendment themselves were a, were a, a factionalized, even among the radical Republicans. There was a wide range of opinions about how uh, how far equal rights for African-Americans should go. But they shared this fear of the return of rebel rule and, and, and uh, sort of across the spectrum of the Republican Party. So, Emily Bazelon, these twin linked Supreme Court cases concerning the affirmative action admissions policies of Harvard, which is a private university, and the University of North Carolina, which is a public state university, and an affirmative action was struck down by a majority on the court. Can you explain to us how the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause was at stake in that 
decision. Yeah, there has been a tension since the 14th Amendment was enacted, and certainly since courts have been trying to interpret it, about whether the 14th Amendment is colorblind, it just has a kind of abstract commitment to equality in it, or whether it was written in historical context in a way that recognizes that the formerly enslaved Black people in the United States and the generations who came after them were of concern, that their rights were foremost, that they were not on an equal playing field, and that the country was going to have to do something to address this terrible history of racial discrimination and enslavement. That tension is there all the way up until the 1960s when race-based affirmative action programs start in universities. And so in this current case, the question is, can the 14th Amendment um, include affirmative action policies that move away from abstract equality, that in some ways recognize the history, the legacy of racial discrimination and the kind of reality um, of people's lives going forward that, you know, the legacy of discrimination and present discrimination still plays out. The colleges and universities are trying to say, look, we are in some ways, in some cases, um, extending a hand to Black and Hispanic applicants because they're underrepresented in our um, pool of applicants. And we want to make sure that they're included in these universities fully and also that our student bodies are diverse. We think there are benefits of diversity that help all students and enrich the learning environment. That kind of preference is at odds with a formal commitment to abstract equality. And the conservative justices on the Supreme Court were and are very skeptical of anything that deviates from an abstract um, version of equality. And so that's why they decided that these affirmative action policies were unconstitutional, given the 14th Amendment's commitment to equal protection under the law. And we should perhaps say that because one question might be in the in the minds of listeners, well, how come affirmative action was ever allowed under the Constitution, given the, the words of the 14th Amendment that I just quoted? How could it ever be possible that a university could say, could take race as a category into account? I mean, this is a this is a slightly complicated story, isn't it, Emily? Because uh, as I understand it, in 1978, the Backey decision which concerned the University of California Davis Medical School, did allow for affirmative action program programs, but on the grounds and only on the grounds that a diverse, a racially diverse class of students was of educational benefit. So in other words, what he didn't do was to say it was fine for the University of California to give a leg up, as it were, to black applicants. They said you can do this for the benefit as much as it were by implication of the white students there who will benefit educationally, socially, culturally from a diverse class. Have I have I got that right? Is that the is that the constitutional basis on which affirmative action was regarded as constitutional between 1978 and this year? Yes. And that was itself a very odd compromise that actually depends entirely on the vote of Justice Lewis Powell who was a Virginian um, who kind of positioned himself as a centrist on the Supreme Court in the 1970s. Nobody else liked this idea that only diversity could justify race-based affirmative action at American universities. The liberals on the court wanted to recognize the legacy of historical and present in their time discrimination and make that 
um, central to affirmative action. And the conservatives on the court didn't want to allow affirmative action at all. But Justice Powell was seeking a kind of middle ground compromise. He hoped that it would be temporary. He saw it as avoiding what he called a racial spoil system. So in other words, if you talk about diversity and the benefits writ large to everyone, then in his view, you would not have the risk of um, different racial groups kind of scrabbling over a certain number of spots in a quota-based system, which was what UC Davis had at the time. Powell was trying to move away from that toward a kind of um, much, (laughs) a kind of vaguer, more individualized notion of affirmative action in which a school, a selective school like Harvard or Yale or Princeton could say, we're taking race into account, but we take lots of things into account. Famously, the Harvard admission policy at the time, which Justice Powell quoted, talked about, you know, the benefits to the school of having Iowa farm boys as well as Black kids. In other words, this idea of diversity could kind of um, affix to people of many different profiles. And this was Justice Powell's sole um, justification and accepted rationale for race-based preferences at universities. The 14th Amendment says that all citizens must be equally protected under the law. None, therefore, should be privileged because of their race. But as Emily Bazelon explained there, the Backey decision of 1978 and also Gruter, a 2003 case, nevertheless allowed colleges to use race as one factor in admissions. One way the court could have done this was by directly rebutting the idea that the 14th Amendment was colourblind. They could have pointed out that back in the 1860s, the same congressman who passed the 14th Amendment also passed laws aimed solely at helping black people, trying to level the playing field by giving them a leg up in the aftermath of slavery. The original intention of the framers of the amendment was to create equality by first recognising that not everyone starts from the same place. But that was not what the court argued in 1978. Instead, as Emily explained, the court allowed affirmative action only as a temporary expedient, subject to strict scrutiny and only on the grounds that it was legitimate for colleges to use race as one factor in their aim of creating diverse classes of students. This was not a very robust constitutional underpinning. And for years, the court's most prominent conservatives have been making the case that eventually what they saw as the constitution's underlying colour blindness would have to be reasserted. Here's Clarence Thomas in 2012, explaining in an event at the National Archives how his own background, growing up in the era of segregation and the civil rights movement, led him to believe that the answer to racism was the Constitution's protection of everyone, of we the people, irrespective of race or any other kind of special category. I grew up in an environment with people around me who believed that this country could be better that the framework for it was there in We the People. We used to memorize the preamble to the Constitution. I I always think it's so fascinating to think of these black kids in the segregated school in Savannah reciting the preamble to the Constitution of the United States or standing out in the schoolyard uh, saying the Pledge of Allegiance every day before school. Mm-hmm. What do we believe? I mean, everything so obviously in front of you is wrong. 
You can't go to the public library. You can't live in certain neighborhoods. You can't go to certain schools. But despite all of that, you lived in an environment of people who said that we were entitled to be a full participant in we, the people. There was never any doubt that we were inherently equal. It said so in the Declaration of Independence. And I think I resist the kind of attitude that it's all lost. It's ours. It's ours to make the best of. Emily Bazelon again. There's always been this fundamental American tension between prizing individual achievement and promoting the collective spirit of the nation and its egalitarian promise. There's the idea of being colorblind, which has this kind of appeal of pure fairness. And then there's the appeal of not being blind to racism, past and present. And Justice Thomas very much weighs in on the side of being colorblind. And he sees that as essential to African-American achievement. He is himself a beneficiary of affirmative action um, when he went to Yale Law School, and he talks about that. But he doesn't think this is good for him personally. He thinks it's a humiliation, really, doesn't he? Didn't he famously stick a kind of 10 cents off discount sticker or something on his Yale certificate? Yes, he did. He thinks it was bad for him, um, or at least cheapened his accomplishments. And he fears that for black people generally. So he's very much from the kind of Booker T. Washington tradition of individual uplift, um, as opposed to the idea which Katanji Brown-Jackson, um, who you mentioned earlier, another Supreme Court justice who's black, she has a countervailing perspective that you have to recognize racism and the role that it plays and that you have to help people um, compensate for that. And in fact, that is what essential fairness is all about. It's about leveling the playing field. And this kind of harks back to an argument that um, Americans had in the 1960s. So we've been talking about Reconstruction in the late 1860s. There's a kind of arguably a second era of Reconstruction in American history in the 1960s, where the country is finally addressing this continuing legacy of Jim Crow that has prevented Black people from any kind of real equality, right? I mean, in the South, in many places, people could barely vote. And so in the 1960s, you see Lyndon B. Johnson, big Democratic president, he's talking about early forms of government affirmative action. And he says at a commencement speech at Howard University in 1965, you don't take a person who for years has been hobbled by chains and liberate him, bring him up to the starting line of a race, and then say, you are free to compete with all the others and still justly believe that you have been completely fair. It is not enough just to open the gates of opportunity. All our citizens must have the ability to walk through those gates. And this is the next and the more profound stage of the battle for civil rights. We seek not just freedom, but opportunity. We seek not just legal equity, but human ability. Not just equality as a right and a theory, but equality as a fact and equality as a result. 
In other words, you have to be thinking about how you restore, how you remedy, how you compensate for the disadvantage that people have been born into. And that's this fundamental debate. Justice Thomas is not interested in the disadvantage um, as a societal problem. He thinks Black people can and should have to rely on themselves to fix that. And Ketanji Brown-Jackson wants to recognize what she sees as this much more complex picture that is still infused by racism. Clarence Thomas is making a very old and quite cynical argument on behalf of his philosophical perspective. And that is a zero-sum game theory of race relations, that if any sort of aid-to-one racial group causes harm to other racial groups, he says as much, and he uses the term zero-sum game to describe this attitude. And and this way of thinking about American race relations as a zero-sum game has a very long and 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 sadly sort of malevolent history, going back to the colonial period and the Jeffersonian era, to the first arguments of anti-abolitionists who argue that you can't have abolition because any attempt to raise the status of freed slaves will degrade white working men. Someone else's freedom is diminishes mine. Someone else's freedom is diminishes mine. A very old argument, an argument used to oppose Reconstruction as well by Andrew Johnson, who was a great believer in a kind of zero-sum game theory of race relations. Part of what Katanji Brown-Jackson and her school of thought is trying to do is to say we don't have to th- conceptualize American race relations in that way. There is an argument to be made, and in, and in my period, going back to the 1860s, the, at the vanguard of this way of thinking are Black abolitionists, but someone like Lincoln catches the refrain, if you will, during the Civil War. Uh, the alternative argument is that freedom of everyone is enhanced if you have diversity and if you have a proactive measures to promote Uh, racial equality. Lincoln said in giving freedom to the slave, we assure freedom to the free. He's capturing something of this idea that that an idealistic defense of diversity uh, is a defense that argues, uh, uh, that that rejects this, the zero-sum game premise and says we all benefit. Uh, And, and, you know, for, for me as an educator, this goes right to the heart of what we do in the sense that one of the Clarence uh, Thomas arguments is that any diversity efforts like affirmative action stereotype and foster stereotyping. In oral hearings on the affirmative action case back in October 2022, Justice Thomas made clear to the counsel for the University of North Carolina his view that the word diversity was banded about as a meaningless shield by defenders of race-based affirmative action. Mr. Park, I've heard the word uh, diversity quite a few times, and I don't have a clue what it means. It seems to mean everything for everyone. But I'd like you to give us a specific definition of diversity in the context of the University of North Carolina. And I'd also like you to give us a, a clear idea of exactly what the educational benefits of diversity at the University of North Carolina would be. If you create a diverse student body and then you circulate through that diverse student body, what you learn is how complex and dynamic our identities are, how variable our experiences are, how closely we really have to listen to each other in order to 
to, to, to read each other, to understand where we're coming from, how many ways there are to connect with other people. It doesn't have to collapse into stereotyping, uh, this, this kind of yearn, uh, uh, this kind of a striving for diversity. There's several different things going on here, aren't there, in the argument for affirmative action. And as we said, when we talk about the Baki decision, Justice Powell's compromise answers basically made the case that you're just making there, Liz, that it benefits everybody if a school in this case is allowed to uh, admit students with an eye to creating a diverse class, including on the basis of race. There's a quite other argument which I think I see Justice Katanji Brown trying to make in her dissent, which is about redress for uh, historic injustice. And that's the argument that Lyndon Johnson was making that Emily quoted earlier, that you don't take a person for years who's been hobbled by chains and liberate him, bring him up to the starting line of a race and say you're free to compete with the others. Um, that, that, in other words, some special remedial help is required by a certain category of people because of who they are defined by this particular badge of identity and katanji brown jackson justice jackson says in her uh dissent she has a hypothetical case where she she imagines two applicants i think it's the university of north carolina with similar grades one black and the other white and makes the case for why the black applicant might legitimately be preferred. Um, When I read that, I thought I could see her point, but I think she makes it too easy, because her imagined white student in her hypothetical case is, she says, the seventh generation of his family to attend the university, while the black student would be the first in his family to go. Um, In this country, in the United Kingdom, of course, there isn't race-based preference. If we were talking about admissions to an Oxford college you could take into account the fact that someone was the first in their family to go to university. You could take into account their socioeconomic background. You could do that anyway, and the University of North Carolina could do that anyway, um, irrespective of taking into account race. Uh, Emily, I mean, uh, do do you recall that bit in in Justice Jackson's uh, uh, dissent? And I, I wonder whether you agree with me that 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 was a sort of weak weak moment in her case i think it's addressing one element of college admissions and race relations in the united states which is that often privilege um generationally tracks with race but our country is is really complicated right to me the sort of two legitimate difficulties with affirmative action are first of all these questions about um socioeconomics, wealth and class and um, immigration status, you know, kind of who is first generation in the United States and what kinds of um, admissions uh, help should go along with that, right? That's like a broader definition of disadvantage than race on its own. So that I think is a really important set of questions that sometimes gets lost when we're having the fights we have in the United States. Um, And the second issue is that we are a very multiracial society now in which there are even more um, Hispanic people in the United States than black people. It's close, but slightly more. And we also have lots of Asian Americans in our midst. Some of them are recent immigrants. Some of them have been here for a long time. We're a polyglot. And there's a way in which the binary of black and white in the United States, it's, it's no longer true. And that has made the whole picture of affirmative action 
more complicated. Um, you know, the supposed plaintiffs in the Harvard case, and I say supposed because there's a group that sued and nobody ever proved that anyone was in the group. But they claim to be representing a lot of Asian American applicants to college. And there is no question that, at the very least, the Asian American community in the U.S. was split over the Supreme Court's um, ruling. There were some liberal Asian Americans who decried it and who feel like it's really Black and Hispanic applicants, given the correlation between race and economic disadvantage and other factors who deserve this kind of leg up. And then there were a lot of Asian Americans who said, great, this decision is going to make it easier for some of our kids to get into these highly selective colleges. At the moment, um, when you look at their academic records, their test scores, it looks like schools like Harvard are deliberately um, depressing those numbers. And that's not fair. Isn't, doesn't this help Clarence Thomas's argument, Emily, in a way? I mean, the fact that it is all now so complex and you're no longer, as you might have been in the 1860s or even to an extent in the 1960s, talking about a race as a binary division where there was one oppressed minority. It's now, as you've just very eloquently described, far more complicated than that. Isn't that kind of what he's trying to drive at and what the majority, what just Chief Justice Roberts is also trying to drive at in saying this is no longer, this may well have been, to give them, let's be generous and say, it may once have been necessary. It may have been necessary once, but it isn't now because the situation is so much more complex and fluid. Yeah, I think it's part of their argument. It's very convenient for them that you have Asian Americans as well as white kids who seem to be disadvantaged by race-based affirmative action, right? Because that just mixes things up in a way that if you're a conservative who thinks there should be abstract colorblindness, you can say, look, it's also Asian Americans who are being discriminated against, not just white people. That's just a more comfortable space to stand in. Um, it doesn't obviate all the factors that um, Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson and the other liberals on the court are concerned about. But yes, it muddies the picture. Well, and, and Ketanji Brown-Jackson uh, also really emphasized in her own dissent that affirmative action has been misrepresented by Clarence Thomas and Roberts and others who have I- implied that it's a, you know, quota system that requires uh, 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 sort of uh, yielding to some quota-like thinking when in fact affirmative action just permits a consideration, doesn't require a consideration of these factors. And, and, in, and in, in the context of a holistic admissions process, that permitting attention to these factors can, can take in all of the kind of subtleties and nuances uh, to which uh, Emily referred. So you have both Katanji Brown Jackson's effort and 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 you know part of the the you can see in the decision her frustration saying I'll give you the tip of the iceberg of the wealth health and well being gap racial gap uh, in this country that is still demonstrable uh, and hope that that can stand in for the long uh, and grim grim story um, so she's trying to make that that case empirically statistically to to prove as she put it freedom was denied far longer than it was ever afforded, while also saying don't caricaturize affirmative action uh, as it actually functions, which is which is um, uh, uh, a, a, a system that is supposed to ideally create a holistic uh, uh, sort of assessment. You know, to get back to Emily's theme about problems with, with all of this, of course, one of the problems is that American universities ultimately haven't been very good at or very successful at 
diversifying their student body. They would be in a much stronger position, wouldn't they, at Harvard and Yale, to to complain about this decision if they didn't openly offer affirmative action to the children of people who are donors or to people who are excellent at equestrian sports and things like this, which is kind of shocking from a from an outside perspective that that's overtly allowed. If you eliminated all those privileged places, you would have more space in these selective universities for the kind of more holistic, ideally the more holistic admissions process that you're describing. Yeah, right. The, the all of these universities, my public university, University of Virginia, the private ones, they all excluded essentially everyone but white Anglo-Saxon Protestant men on the grounds that everyone else was not intellectually or morally capable of um, sort of benefiting from higher education. So the danger of, of slippage, of bringing into question whether all those people who it was thought had no right to be in those spaces, your institution too, Adam, of course, going back many thousands of years, that that no one but white Anglo-Saxon Protestant males had any purchase uh, on these realms, right. had any right to be there. What What's at stake is asserting that all those other people mm. do have a right, every bit as much of a right as as the, the initial beneficiaries of the ultimate mm. affirmative action. Those weren't holistic admissions processes. That was Those were policies of mm-hmm. no blacks, no Jews, no women, no exceptions made. And I think this is the biggest problem the universities have. Um, they had it in the litigation. They still have it. When you look at how they put their classes together, all kinds of people are receiving preferences, donors, legacy kids, which means the kids of people who went to the universities, athletes get a big boost. Um, it's a it's a sausage making enterprise that does not look good upon close inspection. Because of the 14th Amendment, the race-based preferences got singled out and now they're unconstitutional. But really, it's the whole picture, which... Um, really operates to the detriment of kids who have socioeconomic disadvantages, who aren't plugged into the kind of this whole elite world. I mean, this is a very American, privatized, um, intensely unfair system. And I say that as someone who works at Yale University, which is very much part of the whole picture, there's nothing fair about it. And I think that was an essential problem for the schools in these cases. You know, part of what Clarence Thomas and the others are doing is to say you can draw some kind of analogy between affirmative action and the the discriminations of the past. I, I dispute that. The, the, the scale is, is, and the premises are completely different. Yeah. I mean, that is very overtly what he's saying. He aligns himself with the, with the, with the dissenting opinion in the Plessy decision in 1896, which, which uh, was the Supreme Court decision that basically said to the South, yeah, you're fine with segregation. Jim Crow's OK. Uh, you can, as long as you're treating people so you claim to be treating people equally, it doesn't matter if you separate them by race. Uh, the, the very powerful dissenting opinion there is, is approvingly cited by Thomas. So he is very much making the case that any race discrimination is bad. And you might think, and you've made a very powerful, eloquent case there, Liz, for why uh, you should take race into account in order, because race has always been taken into account in a negative sense. Uh, uh, You know, he would say any kind of racial discrimination is wrong. And that's very much explicitly his argument. I wonder, um, just to end really by, Emily, can I just ask you if you think we're what the future holds in terms of the interpretation of 
the Equal Protection Clause for the 14th Amendment in this realm. I mean, does this, I mean, given the balance of the Supreme Court at the moment, I guess, you know, any any future case in the, in the, in the near future is, is going to come up with the same result. Um, do the advocates of affirmative action, the people wanting to make the case that Liz has just made so powerfully, do they need to find another way to do this now? Is the 14th Amendment kind of dead to them for this purpose? In a sense, we genuinely don't know because this is the first admissions year in this kind of post um, era of no more supposedly race-based affirmative action. What has clearly changed is that you don't check a box for race anymore when you apply to school. And the schools, a lot of them to settle the individual litigation against them specifically have agreed not to keep track of how many kids of various races they're letting in as the admissions um, pool continues throughout this particular cycle. Those sound like changes that would change the racial compositions of the student bodies in ways that would presumably benefit white and Asian applicants and end up with fewer Black and Hispanic applicants. And there's also an incentive the schools have to have their numbers change in that way enough so that they're not the next party that gets sued. Because Edward Blum, the um, American who's been financing a lot of these cases has made it super clear that he has an appetite for more litigation and nobody's really excited about all of the discovery and, you know, investigation and publicity that goes along with being the next Edward Bloom defendant. On the other hand, the schools have this widely professed, and I think in some cases at this point in their history, sincere commitment to racial diversity. And the kids at the schools don't want to be in all white or all white and Asian environments. That's like not, I think, what American college students want at all. And it doesn't prepare them for the racially diverse professional world they will hopefully enter. So I think that um, the Supreme Court left a window open in that schools can still credit kids who write in their college admissions essays about how racial disadvantage has been, um, has created adversity in their lives, how they've overcome that, or how their race has benefited them in some way that, you know, makes them feel distinctive or unique, um, that's an aspect of their heritage. And we just don't know how those essays are going to factor into this next cycle and, and whether that will become a kind of backdoor to keeping the numbers fairly similar to what we've seen in previous years. That, I think, is the big kind of question mark here going forward. Uh, I, I agree. That's 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 exactly where where things stand. There are sort of loopholes uh, that that were, in a sense, sort of con concessions extracted by the by the dissenters uh, in the case and how it plays out remains to be seen. One does worry that there's going to be an overall sort of chilling effect on DEI, diversity, equity, uh, uh, inclusion uh, initiatives, that this that there'll be a chilling effect on trying to recruit and hire uh, diverse uh, faculties. So there, there's something about a, a climate change, the letter of the law aside, that this betokens, again, a sort of comeback of the zero-sum game worldview that, that you know, to my mind is, is uh, discouraging and extremely, uh, extremely worrisome. And does it mean, does this decision mean that at least for the foreseeable future, given the balance of the court, we should now, because whatever the, the, con the American Constitution is, you might say, whatever the Supreme Court says it is, 
you know, you can have as many interpretations you want and lawyers will always argue. But in the end of the day, the Supreme Court's function literally is to interpret the Constitution. The Supreme Court has now said, in effect, that we should understand the 14th Amendment as having created a colorblind Constitution. Is that, is that is that what they've just done? And what are the implications of that? Well, that is what they've just done. Um, they've done it, I should say, currently for institutions that are either public or accept public funding, which is true of all the American private universities, basically. Um, the next potential front are private companies. Are they allowed to have recruitment programs that, you know, are specially um, tailored to Black and Hispanic applicants? Are they allowed to have fund scholarships that have that kind of recognition in them? Um, and presumably the logic of that, of, of where we're going with this litigation is obviously no. So just as the, the, the Civil Rights uh, Act attempted to not only deal with discrimination by states, but also by private institutions, the same logic would now be applied by Clarence Thomas and the people who see the world in this way, Well, right? this logic could apply, but I want to um, forestall this inevitable outcome because public <laughs> and private is a really important distinction in American mm-hmm. law. And I also think, you know, Liz was talking about a chilling effect. If you just assume they're going to lose all these future cases, then you kind of cave before you even have to. So I feel like it's important to say that... <laughs> We don't know the answer to that question yet. Um, I mean, I think we don't know what there are five votes for on the Supreme Court in terms of private interference with purely private efforts. That's been a different domain in American law, and it very well could remain so, in fact. Emily uh, Bazelon, Liz Farron, thank you both very much indeed for talking about this complicated and important and fascinating issue with me. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. I was talking to Emily Bazelon of the New York Times magazine and Liz Veron of the University of Virginia. In banning race-based affirmative action, unlike with their abortion ruling last year, the Supreme Court has public opinion on its side. Most Americans like the idea of meritocracy. But these are complex issues, generating deep passions, anchored in America's traumatic racial history and with no easy solution. And although the court has outlawed race-based affirmative action, the justices do not deny that racial diversity can still be a constitutionally legitimate goal. In fact, in a revealing footnote in the majority decision, Chief Justice Roberts acknowledges that race-based preferences can continue to be used in military academies on the grounds that national security requires a military that reflects the racial makeup of the country. Is it sustainable to make the case for the military, but not for the civilian institutions that generate the country's financial and political elite? It seems to me that this ruling, one way or the other, is far from being the end of the story. You've been listening to the Last Best Hope podcast from Oxford's Rothermere American Institute. If you're in Oxford, why don't you come along to Liz Veron's Harmsworth Lecture in American History at 5pm on November the 14th at the exam schools on the high street. And wherever you are, if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and download some of our other episodes. Our producer is Emily Williams and I'm Adam Smith. Goodbye. Goodbye.